Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Today we are here with Philip Bowerswald and we're going to be talking about the coming prosperity, the code economy and market creating transformative innovation. So first let me introduce uh, our guest, Philip Bowerswald is a professor at the Shaw School of Policy and Government. His work is about what I just mentioned, but more broadly entrepreneurship, technology and innovation in a global context. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. All right. So 10 years ago, you wrote an optimistic book in the pessimistic time. It was right after the financial crisis, and it was called The Coming Prosperity. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book at that time. Was something missing from the discourse? Was there, was there too much pessimism? Or was it something that you've been thinking about all along? And the global financial crisis was just a, a coincidence. Well, it was something I've been thinking about for some time, but I like to think about it as I wrote an accurate book at a distorted time, and the distortion was one of a temporal and geographical myopia. The temporal myopia had to do with the global financial crisis and this sense of doom that had settled and the, uh, the geographical myopia had to do with the focus on the United States and advanced industrialized uh, countries. And so this book was essentially to extend the time frame of analysis. And, you know, I roughly uh, set that at, at 40 years in the book and also to reorient towards a global perspective, uh, global perspective meaning, meaning one that includes the majority of the world's population, which at that time, uh, you know, still was earning less than $4, $5 a day, but was uh, and, and is prospering in a way that had not been the case for, you know, much of the time since the Industrial Revolution, and of course, before that as well. So the coming prosperity was about the global economy in a 40-year time frame. And we're 10 years into that. And I think that we have, despite all of the disruptions of which we're quite aware uh, and the significant disruption of the global pandemic, we have seen continued movement towards increased prosperity on a global scale. Yeah, it's definitely the case that we have seen continued movement, but perhaps even more importantly is the immense movement we have seen since the end of World War II in Europe and since the 70s in most of the developing world, especially, of course, India and China. If you look at almost any metrics, as our dear friend Hans Rosling made a career out of showing, even experts are underestimating how well we're doing. So I think the kind of geographical and temporal myopia we would probably see even if the book was uh, was written today. Maybe with different no, arguments. That's, uh, no, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, that's why I really almost insist that despite the optimistic, uh, I will say the title has a deliberately optimistic framing, but the content um, is simply a corrective to, you know, what just some of the basic facts 
of, um, you know, global development over the last 250 or, you know, 25 years, however you want to frame it. Um, and Hans Rosling certainly did make a tremendous contribution in making, you know, widely available some just basic statistics, uh, you know, about that. So, uh, you know, the, the book is completely in that vein. And I guess the differentiating feature as compared with other books that have made the similar point is to elaborate upon the specific role of entrepreneurship in that process. Okay. So you said that uh, one of the ways to see this book as the story of a villain and a hero. And the villain in your case, well, one of them at least, was Malthus. Uh, tell us about Malthus and what he got wrong. Yeah, we talked about various villains, and in this instance... The villainy has to do with the villainy of ideas, not of individuals. So I, uh, you know, alluded to um, a set of villains, um, and some of them I know personally to be wonderful people. But the the villainy is how ideas develop and are used. Now, the Reverend Thomas Malthus was writing at a time where the ideas of uh, political and economic liberalism, and I mean that in the classical liberal sense, uh, were becoming uh, dominant. And he wanted to insist upon the notion that the human proclivity towards reproduction and towards those acts uh, associated with reproduction were ones that had consequences. And being a minister, he was inclined to believe that consequences matter and that we have to take them seriously. And in this case, the consequence was that the uh, tendency of human population is to grow exponentially, whereas the capacity of land to produce food for growing population uh, grows linearly. And as a consequence of this disconnect, uh, Malthus uh, envisioned that humanity would be doomed or had been doomed and was con- going to continue to be doomed to boom and bust cycles of population growth and population crash. Now, this led uh, directly to the poor laws of the early 19th century, and the poor laws were laws that were designed to keep people in poverty. And the reason was that if uh, you gave too much assistance to the poor, then it would just lead to a population uh, explosion uh, localized, and that would only just lead to greater calamity. So the famous anti-Malthusian treatise of the 19th century was uh, Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. And, you know, that was written specifically as an anti-Malthusian rant. And Dickens created the character of of Ebenezer Scrooge as the arch-Malthusian. And there are certain quotes in the book that reflect that. What happened to the Malthusian prediction? Well, Malthus was correct about almost all of human history, pretty much the entirety of human history up to the time that he wrote that book. But then the Malthusian story fell apart. And what we saw was that human populations took off at the same time that human prosperity across a lot of, uh, you know, variety of metrics uh, going beyond just GDP also has increased exponentially. And lifespan being uh, one of those uh, child mortality decreasing all, you know, the different uh, uh, statistics that Hans Rosling emphasized in his work that we just discussed. So in that sense, I think that that what we've seen is a persistence of uh, Malthusian thinking that has led to 
truly some of the most atrocious behaviors that humanity has ever perpetrated on itself. And despite the obvious failings of Malthus, particularly when combined with Darwin, we see a persistence of the Malthusian worldview in the 21st century. And this book was really written as, you know, in part to frame the Malthusian premise as intellectual villainy and to juxtapose it against the, uh, that against some of the heroes that I uh, elevate in the book as intellectual heroes. Yeah, thank you for that. It also strikes me, but when you look at the calculations he did, he pretty simply assumed that agricultural productivity growth would be linear, and he observed that population growth was exponential and that that was not going to be sustainable, especially not where he lived at the time. But of course, what happens was that we started with fertilization, with crop rotation, with all kinds of more efficient and large-scale ways of using land that radically increased productivity, and people could go and work in cities, leading to the Industrial Revolution. But even still, in the Club of Rome, and even now, sometimes I hear these concerns about overpopulation, although we're, we've been stagnating for a while uh, even the Club of Rome talked of sterilization and other draconian measures. What still drives Malthusian thinking, despite us having so much to look back to and so many indications that the scenario that they envisage by simply extrapolating from the past and not looking at previous trends and innovation and or not taking innovation or human ingenuity into account at all, what drives it? I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, an immediate answer, but I think an unsatisfactory one, is reasoning by force of habit. And uh, one dimension of that is the still widespread belief, although in the last five years it has begun to change. Actually, I've begun to see a change in the notion of the population explosion. And this is despite the fact that we are at least 40 years in to the transition on a global scale from population growth to population decline. And I wrote about this in a little ebook with June Yun in 2015, and I discussed it uh, to some extent in the coming prosperity as well. But the transition from not just uh, population growth to population plateauing or stabilization uh, but population growth to population decline. I mean, once the second derivative is negative, there's no real reason that it would stop. And so there's this kind of fantasy that global population, you know, increases, uh, that we have growth and then it sort of magically plateaus and that we don't see decline. Well, that's not really, uh, the way that uh, growth rates work once they begin to go negative. So Malthus was just wrong on so many dimensions over the last couple hundred years. And in particularly once we've seen the demographic transition play itself out across the world. And now we're seeing, you know, uh, in India, fertility rates at below replacement rate. So I think that is an excellent question. And I mean, I, again, a wonderful person, but a villain in this story is, you know, our good friend Jeffrey Sachs, who has, despite being somebody who really understands the importance and value of technological innovation and entrepreneurship in uh, boosting long-term prosperity, nonetheless has in, you know, in his writings and, and in his policy advocacy, I think been the leading neo-Malthusian. 
And uh, so I think it's you have outspoken proponents who benefit from perpetuating this narrative. And then you have reasoning by force of habit. And then you have a failure to watch Heinz Rosling videos. I really don't know what the answer is, but it's it, it persists. And it's, it, the point is, it's destructive to have a mistaken understanding of the fundamentals of history and long term trends. It's not, it's not just benign. Uh, it can lead to poor policy and bad outcomes. I mean, everybody should read the Kissinger Report of 1973 to understand exactly how the ideas of the early 20th century, which were some of the worst ideas uh, produced by intellectual communities anywhere in human history, persisted uh, well past World War II into the 1970s and were very influential uh, both in major foundations around the world, including the United States, uh, including the Rockefeller Foundation, which is otherwise a wonderful place, uh, in the United States policy, uh, as reflected, as I said, in the Kissinger Report in 1973. So this isn't just a story that ends, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. It has persisted. And, um, you know, some of these ideas have truly been pernicious ideas. Maybe they're attractive ideas. I heard in the U.S. economy works differently in several ways. And one of the ways is that the cost of inflation is not printing 10 times as much U.S. dollars as you had 10 years ago. The cost of inflation is price gouging. That doesn't really work like that here in Europe. But it's a story that sort of people believe in. What for us seems like an inscrutable reason, less innocuous in this case. They're definitely all around us. You know, in this book and in other work, you know, you referred to the paper I had the opportunity to write uh, with Clayton Christensen, uh, Afoso Joma, and Gabriel Danes Gay on market creating innovation. You know, I think any of us who work in intellectual communities, our aspiration should be to bring fact based analysis to the forefront. So, you know, and of course, we can have a lot of debates over the nature of uh, basic facts and their interpretation and, uh, you know, it's not to say that, you know, that there's only one, one, one set of facts and one potential interpretation. But, yeah, that is the aspiration of, of this body of work. And, um, you know, I think we have an overabundance of uh, narratives that are just baldly self-serving or politically distorted. And I, I feel undeterred in the general mission to try to point analysis to sort of some factual foundation. And, and, and you know, just say as an aside, Lars, you know, like some people may be listening and saying, well, you know, uh, Malthus wasn't wrong, you know, think about climate change. This is just one case in point of what I was just referring to, which is that uh, the Malthusian narrative was all about resource scarcity and competition. Mm. And, you know, we have a problem of global climate change because we have an overabundance of one particular category of resource, which is fossil fuels. If fossil fuels had become scarce and extremely expensive the way that the Club of Rome predicted, then we wouldn't have had an onset of climate change. We would have had a transition to alternative forms of energy much earlier. But the fact of the matter is that that oil and natural gas have stayed, uh, well, oil in particular, uh, has stayed too cheap for too long and have continued to be the mainstay of the transportation system because of their overabundance um, and because of their low cost. You know, and this is almost a story of inverse price gouging, that the oil producing mm. states have, been, have managed to maintain, use whatever market power they have and production, uh, you know, spare capacity manipulation that they have to keep the price of, of oil 
uh, within a band uh, such that, uh, you know, consumers would not be uh, induced to uh, transition on a wide scale to electric vehicles or, uh, you know, alternative forms of energy to power transportation, which is what we're finally seeing now. So that is a case in point where the fact that we have global climate change is not an affirmation of the Malthusian narrative. It's just the opposite. It is a mm. it is a demonstration of the fact that Malthus was incorrect about the price trajectory of, uh, well, in this case, non-renewable resources, but about global scarcity being the defining economic and political uh, fact of our times. But it is in some way a vindication of the notion of original sin. We've been here, we've sinned, uh, we create a damage. If it's not too many people, then it was pollution, which was really a problem for 50 years ago, which we in most cases have managed to solve. And now it's climate change. It doesn't matter. We look for sort of reasons to, to kind of stick to this narrative. And I think what frustrates me personally the most about it is that we've known about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for over 100 years. Uh, the first time it was mentioned as a problem was in 68, and we started taking it seriously in the 80s. Every single economist that I could have imagined would have, say, do a small stabilizing tax and invest the proceeds in all kinds of innovation, including... Including, you know, why are we still using using nuclear power technology, which was one of 500 options from the 40s? Absolutely. And and we would have found things that were better by now. And and uh, everyone would switch. But, uh, you know, I'm going to take issue with one thing you just said, but only in a minor way, which is this uh, uh, allusion to original sin. You know, I think about it differently as paradoxes of progress. There's almost no problem besetting humanity at the moment that is not a continuation of something that was a genuine and dramatic positive. And I would say climate change is an example. And why? Well, you know, uh, I think we all remember, at least I certainly do, because I was, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember the real peak of the Save the Whales campaigns of the 1970s and 1980s. Well, who really saved the whales? Um, if one person saved the whales, it was John D. Rockefeller and the advent of the fossil fuels industry. Because until then, it's an astonishing thing to conceive, but we were lighting our city streets with the fat of fellow large mammals. We were slaughtering other sentient beings to light the streets at night. That is cruelty on an inconceivable scale. And it was it was the discovery of oil and the use of oil and ultimately then electrification uh, that allowed us to escape a world in which we were powering street lamps with whale oil. So that's a huge ethical positive. And. Nobody in the 19th century could possibly know that the burning of fossil fuels at scale would have the consequences it is. Now, we talk about industrial and pollution, but again, what was it that allowed us as a species to escape from Malthusian doom? Well, it was some version of the Industrial Revolution. It transformed the human experience. Urbanization, which is actually a net ecological good in the end, you know, was a big dimension of that. So, again, a dramatic, massive positive, but then 
see where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a world where the scale of human activity has become so huge that we are affecting the climate. And we have been, as you say, for for decades. But it's not really original sin. It's it's a paradox of progress. And unfortunately, Mm. that seems to be the way history works. Yeah, I think what I meant for the, is driven by a desire to have some kind of original sins to do penance against in a modern sense, not, of course, in the medieval scholastic sense. And once one problem is resolved, we keep harping on it for a while, and then we find another one. If it was global I, I mean, you're saying, why do these ideas persist? And it's because of this sense of kind of a collective guilt that almost needs to be assuaged. Yeah, and I think we still see this in the discussion about technology and uh, the harm it can create, inequality it can create, which means that we have a lot of problems on the table. Mm-hmm. Probably a third of them are not really problems. A third of them we will be able to resolve. A third of them will actually be problems, and we don't know which. So we should move on to um, your your hero in the story, uh, Schumpeter and who he was and why he and his, let's say, disciples or the ones that followed in his tradition had a much more productive and useful understanding of what was going on. Well, Joseph Schumpeter was an Austrian economist who grew up in very turbulent times, times that we don't recall as being turbulent because they were prior to World War One, And so the, the we... Down, downfall of the Habsburg Empire and the booming the of the, the, exactly. the cultural I mean, blooming and... Yeah. I, I mean, let's say in Austria, they may remember in the United States is just sort of like some vague pre-World War One stuff happening. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Collapse of the Habsburg Empire and then some very pronounced economic shocks and collapses and market turmoil. And, you know, young Schumpeter found himself uh, right in the middle of all that and experienced, uh, you know, very significant financial losses at various times in his, uh, you know, youth or, you know, as a young man, let's say. So it's rather remarkable. I I would just add to what is remarkable, just one point. So this was after the union with Hungary, the Habsburg Empire basically started declining, but became a hub of marvelous artistic innovation um, at, uh, at about the turn of the century. But at the same time, to keep such a huge empire together, to keep the Slavs at peace, they had Ukraine, they had divided up Poland three times. They developed this immense bureaucratic apparatus that stood for, at the time, the highest rate of public sector employment in the world because so much of this was centered in, right. in Vienna. But there was basically no entrepreneurship, and that's maybe part of why it was dying. Well, that is. He hadn't seen it. Yeah, that's a terrific elaboration. I really appreciate that. Yeah, so he was well positioned. And I think we also forget how incredibly vibrant Vienna was at the start of the 19th century and just how many. And I'm not going to make my attempt to enumerate them all. I will leave that either to you or to listeners to just uh, do their own uh, research. You know, it's not an area of specialization for me. It's just that when I have happened upon that era, it, it really was one of the great flourishings of creativity and of ideas uh, in human history, really. So, so Schumpeter came out of that. Um, and as you say, he had reasons, and actually some of which you're talking about 
in terms of the bureaucratic ab- apparatus that lingered following the uh, collapse of the Habsburgs also helps to you know set the stage. But Joseph Schumpeter wrote a book in 1911. Then it was translated into English in the early 1930s. And uh, this book uh, was called The Theory of Economic Development, and it placed the function of the entrepreneur as the creator of new economic combinations at the heart of the story of economic development. And by development, Schumpeter meant something uh, biological and evolutionary. He meant really the ongoing structural transformation that occurs as new ideas are introduced and advanced into economic life. And he understood and saw the function of entrepreneurs as being those individuals or groups of of individuals, small groups, who took it upon themselves to bring new ideas, new economic practices, inventions into uh, economic life. And, uh, you know, his singular contribution was to frame that function of introducing novelty and of bearing the risk to to bring the potential value in that novelty to fruition, to, you know, to really highlight that. And honestly, uh, we're still catching up with the ideas in that book. You know, the, the, the field of economic development in the past hundred years since Schumpeter experienced a brief flourishing and then a lengthy decline when it, uh, you know, when it devolved into either uh, some kind of subsidiary activity to technocratic planning or now some kind of uh, gold standard project management under the flag of randomized control trials, which has absolutely nothing to do with the very grand theorizing and historical analysis that is present in the theory of economic development. And I think it should be a source of great sadness to all economists to observe this unraveling and this decline of what was once a truly inspired and inspiring domain of inquiry. What fascinates me, and by the way, I would add uh, to the name of names like Keynes and Schumpeter and Hayek, I would add the name to flow to a long row of people who are sometimes looking at a cast at how far uh, his or her disciples are are taking the ideas, uh, just because you mentioned a randomized control trial. But two things come to mind here. One is that there's nothing striking about it. It seems like, yeah, this is the way the world works. So there's nothing counterintuitive about it. Why haven't we thought about it before? Well, we had Smith with us. Baker and Brewer, and uh, we had Marshall, uh, who traveled west and saw kind of how everyone was trying to build something and then suddenly understood the importance of companies, which we have been sort of treating in economic theory as back boxes before that. Then, of course, the, uh, Frank Knight maybe also foreshadowed it a little bit. But it, why did it take an Austrian writing in, what was it, 40s in the middle of the war to put something – and, of course, Marx uh, uh, foreshadowed bits of it, too. But to put this on paper in such a clear way, why did it take so long and why did it take this person? Second question is, why haven't we taken it seriously? Why was it in the 90s that we all of a sudden had to support SMEs and entrepreneurship was important and then startups? And I felt like I didn't hear it before. We knew how important they were. What happened? Well, 
you, you've really gotten to the heart of what I intended as the intellectual contribution of the book that I ended up titling The Coming Prosperity, uh, really for potentially misguided marketing reasons. I think I could have, uh, in a less engaging title, uh, you know, selected something like the rise and fall of large scale industry and our uh, entrepreneurial moment or something like that. And the intention there would have been to really provide a response to your question. In in doing that, I just want to comment. I just want to make one quick observation, which is that because I, I neglected to say this before, in the category of post-Malthusian or even anti-Malthusian writings, we have to correctly put the entirety of neoclassical economics. Neoclassical economics is new classical economics. It was new classical economics because it wasn't the old classical economics. The old classical economics was was oriented around, you know, from the physiocrats on forward, classical economics was about the fixity of land and how value is created from land. And in during the 19th century, um, you know, there was a complete transformation of the nature of production. And so instead of a, a world based on land, labor and capital, where land played the central role, then suddenly, you know, by the early 20th century, we were just talking about capital and labor, machines and people that reflected an industrial society. That was uh, the, the beginnings of an expression of value creation in which the fixity of land was not the central story. So it's an interesting thing that, you know, that, that as much as uh, neoclassical economics is demonized, anybody who demonizes neoclassical economics has not read the writings of William Stanley Jevons, who was one of the early architects of neoclassical, neoclassical economics, who also wrote passionately on the value of profit sharing and business, on the importance of providing uh, worker protections uh, of a type that would actually empower and reward workers. is simply a miscomprehension of the progressive and radical nature of the origins of neoclassical economics. So I just have to make that point. Now, that's in the 1870s, 1880s that you have, you know, Jevons and Walras and Pareto really building the architecture of neoclassical economics. In parallel, you have one of the most remarkable books ever written in the field of economics, uh, which is uh, a, a book written by a newspaper man in San Francisco named Henry George called Progress and Poverty that anticipated, um, you know, almost all of the ideas of new growth theory for those of uh, people who actually follow economic theory and are familiar with the work of Paul Romer and et cetera. Um, and, you know, that then built on, you know, growth theories uh, of the 1960s, uh, including by my friend and mentor, Carl Schell. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that is anticipated in, in Progress and Poverty, which is another anti-Malthusian rant. And in fact, uh, uh, Henry George's book is a, is a very pointed and extremely articulate anti-Malthusian rant. And I, I recommend that anybody who's interested in intellectual history from the last 200 years read that book. Uh, which was the best-selling book written by an American, any American to that point. It read, sold more than 2 million copies worldwide, more than anything uh, written by Mark Twain. And in the end of the 20th century, Henry George was, along with Herbert Spencer, the most famous economist in the world. So Schumpeter writes Theory of Economic Development in 1911. So before World War One and before the Great Depression, before World War II, the book that he then became, uh, you know, better known for was a book that he wrote really just as a kind of a popular, um, you know, just almost like an attempt at a bestseller called Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And that came out in 1942. But the core ideas were in a paper he wrote in 1928 called The Instability of Capitalism. 
And what that paper was about, and I'm now getting to the answer to your question, why did it take 80 years to get back to the ideas that were so clear and obvious in the theory of economic development? There's a reason for that. And Schumpeter himself saw the reason. 1911, he writes about the vital role of entrepreneurs in economic dynamism. Economic dynamism is not the same thing as economic growth. It's the capacity for ongoing reinvention. That's dynamism. That's why entrepreneurs are important. Even if entrepreneurs are a small fraction of the entrepreneurial activity is a smallish fraction of all activity in the economy, most of which is routinized and run by large corporations, they are disproportionately responsible for economic dynamism. Schumpeter saw that, wrote about it in 1911. Between 1911 and 1928, he saw the increasing power of very large business entities. And, you know, this was just at the time that you started to see the emergence of these. You know, they had them in Germany, you know, Tyson Steel and others, uh, you know, from the 19th century. But but we really saw the emergence of the large corporation in the 20th century. Now, um, you know, Brad DeLong has a, a terrific book um, that is just coming out now, and it's called uh, Slouching Towards uh, Prosperity, if I'm remembering the um, title correctly. Um, and it talks about the central role of corporations and corporate research labs in the progress of the 20th century. The the dominance of large corporations in advanced industrialized countries was so dramatic that in the early 1950s, the United States created a small business administration, uh, the purpose of which was to help small businesses survive. It wasn't to fund small businesses, the engines of growth. It was specifically and explicitly about small business as part of the American way of life. And unless small business got government protection, there would be no small business. So that's what happened to the Schumpeterian narrative in the middle of the 20th century. It got buried under the weight of what, you know, Alfred Chandler chronicled as, you know, scale and scope in the economy. And and so we had this really exceptional moment in economic history globally where things like the job and pensions and promotions and bosses and all these things suddenly were invented. And became like almost the entirety of economic life. That had never happened in previous human history, and it will not be the future. It's just a little moment. And so that's why Schumpeter is so relevant today, because Schumpeter is talking about the essence of economic life. And what happened in the middle of the 20th century was actually very exceptional and will not be revisited for a variety of reasons. Thank you so much, Philip. Okay, so basically we're talking about a story that sort of ripened, starting with Adam Smith, when there were no real entrepreneurs, there were mercantilists, and then the small-scale butchers, bakers, and the brewers. Then the large companies came out. But then, of course, there was the Great Depression, which hit Europe actually harder, especially Germany, harder than the U.S. So no one believed in, in capitalism anymore. And at the same time, mm-hmm. everyone built up large military states that you can't right. just deconstruct. And there was this uh, conviction that it's the moral obligation, which actually Hayek, of all people, echoed, for a, a state to take care of its poor people. So this notion of the welfare mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. came up yep. and played out in completely different ways in the U.S. In the U.K., they started just buying up national productive assets. And in in France, they had indicative planning. 
In Sweden, we focus on redistribution. But this sort of stood in the way. And there were large companies, and large companies had in what Phelps called corporatism, a stronger and stronger relationship to produce sort of the value that was needed to finance all of this. So there was no room for entrepreneurship, let alone a culture of celebrating it. But maybe that's the time that we're about to see now or that we have seen over the past 20 years. And I'd like you to say a few words about that at the end. But first, can I just ask you to give us just five points to entice the reader to to pick up your book from 2012 and to explore the five main messages or six or four that you make? Oh, wow. Five, six, four. I'm not too sure. I mean, it's a 10 year old book. I, I think that it's, as I said, a book about, you know, long term trends in the economy, um, the rise and fall of large corporations. It is a, a book about the, you know, role of entrepreneurs really at the heart of economic dynamism. So anybody who's interested in that concept, which is uh, related to development and related to growth, but is a distinct idea. So, you know, a lot of the book is about that. It's a book about, you know, celebrating intellectual figures whose uh, profile in the popular imagination could be much greater than uh, they are. And Schumpeter, who we've been discussing, is, uh, you know, at the top of that. So that's not fine. But I think the discussion we just had in the last half an hour provides some of the you know high points of that book. I like the book. Um, you know, we haven't talked yet about the code economy, but I actually like the code economy better just because I feel like it has uh, a sustained narrative about a set of ideas that I'm really interested in. I mean, to me, the coming prosperity is like you can also just look at Hans Rosling videos. You know, honestly, it's just a question of when we look at those Hans Rosling videos, what underlies that? How how did that happen? I guess that's what the coming prosperity is about, is that when we look at those videos and we see the discontinuity that occurred in the early 20th century. I mean, there's been all, you know, a tremendous amount of writing by uh, Nate Rosenberg, you know, among others, you know, many economic historians have written about the singularity of the uh, growth episode and the economic transition that happened, uh, you know, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries. And so the coming prosperity is, you know, to a certain extent in that vein. But what I really try to emphasize is I combine that economic history with, you know, the perspective on economic dynamism provided by Joseph Schumpeter. And that's really the point of the book. Um, and also to project that forward and basically say, you know, the story of human prosper progress is far from done. I mean, if you think the story's done when it's just about to reach the majority of people, then I don't really know what kind of story that is. Right. Because like in 1975, this grand story that Rosenberg and others wrote about could still only reach a sixth of the people in the world. So you can't really say it's over. Right. And since then, you know, since I first went to uh, China in 1986, I mean, that in this last quarter century is when we have seen that story unfold as never before. I mean, that was like 35 years. And look, if anything has shaped my worldview, it's the experience of having lived in China for admittedly just a summer in 1986, worked in a Chinese work unit. I worked at the Weibenju Foreign Languages Press, which is the unit of the Chinese government that was responsible for publishing the little red books during the Mao era. I believe that they had warehouses full of them back then. You know, living that and then going back to China, as I have many times over the last 35 years and 
you don't believe in the possibility of societies to transform themselves at scale, then you should have that experience. And by the way, everybody who is my age in China has lived that. Anybody who lives in Korea has lived that. If we in advanced industrialized countries think that there's no fundamental change happening in the world, it's just we haven't had the perspective that the majority of people in the world have had because they've seen it in their own societies. Yeah, definitely. Plus, we're blind to what's happening. But of course, if you if you live in China, you would see that much more. I think what strikes me, just to add to your point about China, is that it seems like I started reading Kissinger's China, then I started getting more and more interested in it, and then I started visiting it, and I noticed a pattern. And the pattern was that every time I read about some environmental disaster or uh, that Beijing streets being clogged, and then visited the country... I found that they were already three years ahead of us. Uh, the big question, of course, if this real innovative dynamism is going to be able to take root in a system like that outside the areas where they have. And we don't know yet, but on the other hand, we've been predicting the demise or stagnation of China since the 1980s, and we've been wrong so far. So it would well, be full, foolhardy to offer a prognosis. Yeah, that is a huge, huge topic. And You know, I have a chapter on China and the coming prosperity. I will only say that China was one third of the world economy for 500 years. This is Angus Madison data. That was until the 1830s. For 500 years, China was one third of the world economy. Immediately following World War II, when all but one of the global production centers of the world was destroyed, and the United States was the only one left standing, even then the United States was not one-third of the world economy. So one-third of the world economy is a lot. And of course, through that interval, that 500 years, it was mostly just about population because it was just uh, you know GDP scale to population. By 1979, after the Cultural Revolution, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, China was 2% of the world economy. Every young person in China knows this. No young person in the United States who's not of Chinese origin knows this. Uh, well, and what happened in 1830? Something that we don't like to think about or remember. It has the name of the Opium Wars. Okay. Well, what's the, the, the analogy? If you're not familiar with the Opium Wars, imagine at the height of the cocaine cartels in Colombia of the, uh, you know, sort of 1980s, 1990s. If the government of Colombia had sent warships to, you know, and it may be colluded with other coca producing countries to capture the ports of San Francisco, Los Angeles and New York, and then to use those ports as forced entry points for the importation of cocaine and to impose as a condition of economic life that the government of the United States permit and encourage uh, the consumption of cocaine. And that's what the uh, European powers did in the 1830s with opium. And the reason they did that was because they suffered such a severe imbalance of trade that was favorable to China. So all of this specie, the gold and silver in Europe, was sort of gradually drifting over to China and accumulating in China because China had more of value that they were producing than the Europeans could produce. The one thing that Europe had through its uh, colonial you know, empire was opium. So the Opium Wars were an incredibly depraved and aggressive and immoral and unethical abuse of the imbalance of technological capacities in warfare. And that really was what set into motion the decline of China. 
Um, so, you know, again, this is common knowledge. This is the basically equivalent of, you know, Americans studying the uh, Declaration of Independence or French people studying the French Revolution. This is known to any, you know, young person in China. Uh, it's important that we just understand this basic history. And that began to slide. And of course, the Chinese did a lot to undo themselves in terms of their, you know, uh, dynastic decay and a lot of stories that one can read about and talk about. But it's a huge change to go from 30% to 2%. And right now, China is 14% of the world economy. When I wrote the book, The Coming Prosperity, they were 11% of the world economy, still a long way from 33%. So I think that the Chinese perspective is that they are just slowly regaining their rightful place in the world economy. And regardless of what one thinks about the current Chinese leadership or the direction that China is taking now, I, I have no position on that. I think the basic idea that China is a populous, important country with a lot of very clever, hardworking people, and it makes sense that they have a significant role in the world economy. To me, that seems, you know, reasonable. And, you know, how they pursue that, the policies of the Chinese government, the nature of the current, current Chinese leadership, totally, completely different story. And of course, the Chinese see themselves as re-emerging from the latest step. They see their history really in uh, scales of almost up to 10,000 years. Yeah, and exactly. They, they've re-emerged before, they fell apart before, and now they're re-emerging again. Uh, but, you know, whereas we, we kind of frame China as like this developing country that is now kind of overperforming. I mean, that's, that's just, from a historical standpoint, total nonsense. Yeah, and we know from travel records that they were much richer than we were exactly. during the Middle Ages. So this, it's even that is a relatively recent notion. But I wanted to just close this up by, first of all, congratulating you for writing a book that had a risk of sounding like many other books, but ended up being original in several ways. And it's tribute to entrepreneurs and human ingenuity for finding solutions and how important it is to support uh, entrepreneurs, which we do now, but only partially and only if they're high tech. So there's no, at least here in Europe, there's no kind of a culture of celebrating entrepreneurship. So I congratulate you on that and just invite you to give a few final thoughts about what has surprised you uh, in the past 10 years based on what your assumptions uh, were back then. Well, I mean, I have a chapter on the global mobile revolution. And in that chapter, I allude to, you know, some ideas that uh, were quite fashionable at the time I was writing that book, talking about the use of social media during the Arab Spring. And, you know, the way I tell it, it is a story of technologically enabled distributed power organizing to overcome, uh, you know, centralized oppression. I watched the Arab Spring happen on Twitter. I happened to do a special issue of my journal, Innovations, for the uh, World Economic Forum in the Middle East in 2007. And as a consequence of that, uh, when I joined Twitter, uh, I had, uh, you know, many, um, you know, folks I followed and folks that I'd become friends with who were entrepreneurs uh, and, and innovators and tech people in the Middle East. Um, you know, I was watching this blow up on my Twitter feed days, if not weeks before, uh, you know, it showed up in the New York Times. And it became a marital issue because my wife was like, you're seriously on your phone all the time. And I was like, well, the history is happening before, you know, our eyes here. This is unbelievable. Mm. So I lived it. I knew the power of social media. I did not anticipate the way that state actors would be able to identify uh, social media as a weapon. 
and the weaponization of social media and the, the power of social media delivered through mobile phones globally has become, you know, something like the uh, Blitzkrieg was at the start of World War II and what it did to the Maginot Line. So, you know, mm. conventional ideas of national security, conventional ideas of defense, conventional ideas of economic power, conventional ideas of aggression have been completely upended in the last five years and with, you know, just dramatic consequences. So I did not see that coming at all. And of course, it's also evident in events over the last seven or eight years. So, you know, that has been a huge uh, transformation. I don't think it shifts the arc of human progress, actually. I think it's mm. of first order importance for people who live in the United States of America and in Europe. I think it is of great significance elsewhere in the world. I believe that the fundamentals of uh, that I describe in the coming prosperity are so powerful that they will continue to advance the human condition for at least the 30 more years that uh, were in my uh, coming prosperity time frame. But, um, you know, it's a significant change. Yeah. And it's not only the effect it's turning out to have in politics, even in countries that are not democratic. In fact, I I read a book recently saying that there are no dictators anymore. There are only spin dictators. There's a new generation of dictators that have advanced and and adapted themselves very carefully to this situation. So that will definitely continue. Another thing I find fascinating is, well, there's a lot of talk about charter cities and about uh, seasteading, but there's also an enormous potential through technologies like blockchain. There are more and more functions that used to be carried out or at least secured by the government, such as contract enforcement and some policing that can now be done privately and securely through blockchain. So many things might happen there as well. A third trend is the number of countries that are offering what they call e-citizenships. It's not only about banking secrecy anymore. It's about any kind of arbitrage you want to do with your transactions or with anything else. These possibilities are going to be larger and larger. So the yeah. nation state is going to get is going to get less power. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. Well, that's it. That, you know, that's it. That's, that's an interesting uh, point. I mean, I have a chapter on uh, blockchain technology, a, a couple of chapters in the, the code economy. And uh, I was sufficiently committed to the line of argument that you, you know, just uh, initiated that in about 2017, I started a company with the purpose of uh, participating in the uh, transition of uh, land registry to uh, blockchain-based technologies. Um, that is still underway, uh, and I've, I've certainly learned a lot about land registry in the last five years, and it's an area that I continue to follow very closely. Um, if anybody's interested in that, they're free to contact me directly. Um, you know, I'm not going to elaborate. Um, so I, I fully agree with that, and I, I also had the opportunity to visit Estonia a few times you know, in that interval when they had just uh, launched the e-citizenship. And um, I think it's fascinating. And I was really hopeful at the time that Estonia could have a billion citizens. And, um, you know, they may yet, because I think it makes a lot of sense for Estonia to have a billion citizens and to provide, you know, those services that you were alluding to and more to virtual citizens worldwide. So it's a little bit how the Cayman Islands can serve the global wealthy. Well, if we have islands of good governance, 
those can serve uh, the global majority who don't have access to good government. Like yeah. Estonia, in theory, could be kind of a, a Cayman Islands for good governance. That would be incredible. And create support for reforms. Absolutely. By demonstration yeah, effects. That, yeah. That's a very yeah. positive trend. So I think you've highlighted a couple that I feel are, are great examples of trends that are aligned with the general themes of the coming prosperity, but certainly not things I talked about in that book. Yeah. Philip Auerwald, it's been an excellent discussion. Next time we'll speak about the code economy, which I also find your even more fascinating book. It's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lars. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it.